Hello, I'm Elliot Knight, Director of the Alabama State Council on the Arts. Welcome to Alabama Arts Radio. Each week, Council staff will introduce you to exceptional artists and special people who make the arts happen in Alabama. Alabama Arts Radio features the visual, performing, literary, and folk arts that contribute to our state's rich cultural heritage. Join us each Wednesday at 9 p.m. Central to explore the diverse and dynamic arts landscape in Alabama. Hello, this is Ann Kimsey with the Alabama State Council on the Arts. I am here today with my colleague and friend, Joey Brackner, who is the director of the Alabama Center for Traditional Culture, which is a division of the State Arts Council. Hi, Joey. Hello, good to be here. And we're talking to you today because you have some news about your next career move. So. What would you like to tell the listeners? Well, I'm retiring after 36 years here as a folklorist for the Alabama State Council on the Arts. And it's interesting, as, as any listener out there who has retired will tell you, it's really strange. But to contemplate not going into the office every day after doing so for such a long time. And for me, especially having a, such an enjoyable job, a dream job really but yes this is going to happen at the end of the year 21 I look forward to continuing my work as a folklorist but not being employed by anyone self-employed self-employed <laughs> if if employed at all <laughs> okay what year did you come to the state arts council and how did you decide to take this job? Well, I came in 85, but I, I had a relationship with the State Arts Council because when I was in grad school, I went to the University of Texas at Austin. I was an archaeology, anthropology student, but I got interested in folklore because there were some really famous folklorists there on staff at Texas, and they were very much interested in me and in my interest in the culture of the Deep South, which is where I'm from. And I, I became less interested in prehistoric Indian culture and more interested in the historic cultures of the South while I was at Texas. And my graduate professor, John Vlatch, gave me a really great thesis idea, which was on the pottery of in the Guadalupe River Valley of Central Texas, where some Southern potters had come out there and made some Southern-looking stoneware. Um, and some of their potters were enslaved. And then after the emancipation, those freed potters then opened up their own pottery. So my master's thesis was comparing those two pottery enterprises. And I, so I learned a lot about pottery. And when I moved back home to Alabama, the State Arts Council actually was working with the Montgomery Museum of Fine Arts on an Alabama pottery show. They hired me to do research. I worked with Hank Willett who was then the folklorist at the State Arts Council. That was 1983, that was a fun project. Did research all over the state, interviewed old potters, and did historical research. And then Barbara Edwards, who was the arts and education director here at the Arts Council, she got to know me because I had worked on this pottery thing. She said, well, 
you know, I would like to send a folklorist into the Tuscaloosa County school system and work with a couple of schools. So in 1984, I did that. I worked in Coker and Buell as a folklorist in residence, and I brought in traditional artists, musicians, and crafts artists to basically interact with the elementary school kids, and that was a lot of fun. So when Hank left his job and it opened up the state folklorist job here, I applied for it and I got it, and that was in 1985. And what was among your first duties as a folklorist at the State Arts Council? Well, I learned a lot about state bureaucracy. <laughs> there were NEA final reports on NEA grants and things of that nature, and so I, I had a crash course in, in terminology and the whole area of government grants and government projects and what is expected and timelines and budgets and matching funds and all the things that, uh, you know, I'd never heard about. And the NEA is the National Endowment for the Arts? National Endowment for the Arts. uh, Really, the NEA, the National Endowment for the Arts, was established in the 1960s. And one thing they did very soon thereafter that has been of great help to Americans is they helped each state start their own arts council. And they would give some money to be regranted within those states. But then they encouraged the state governments to to grant state monies as well. And so that's what we have here at the State Arts Council. We have now just a really small percentage of federal money that we regrant to arts artists and arts agencies or arts organizations in Alabama but it's mostly state money now. But anyway, I came in, I learned about that. I learned about some of the state's great traditional artists, some like Dewey Williams, a, an African-American sacred harp singer from, from the Wiregrass from Ozark, Alabama, who had already won a National Heritage Fellowship, and some basket makers, some traditions in Alabama like uh, acapella gospel singing, like sacred harp singing of every variety, and quilt traditions. We're very rich in quilting traditions, a wide variety of quilting traditions, a wide variety of sacred music forms. So I started learning about all these things, and I continued to be interested in pottery. Because when I did the 1983 project with Hank, we met Jerry Brown, a traditional potter who had been raised by an older-than-average father who had learned a really old style of pottery making, who had left the pottery business, but then decided to come back in his middle age. And we basically got to know him when he got back into business. So with Jerry and other potters who had learned traditionally within their families, I'd started doing projects with them. I did a film with Apple Shop, which is a media production company in Kentucky. I did a film about Jerry Brown uh, called Unbroken Tradition. And then I, I helped you know, various traditional arts groups around the state, either by helping them get grants through our program to do things like reprinting the colored sacred harp or the Christian harmony to actually sponsoring singings. We sponsor two singings. Back in the late 80s, we we started sponsoring a singing in July where the Sacred Harp singers sing out of all four of the Sacred Harp books or shape notebooks that have historically been published in Alabama, which is the Colored Sacred Harp, the Christian Harmony, and two versions of the Sacred Harp, the Cooper Revision, and what used to be called the Denson Revision. And so those singings were really immensely popular. 
And so we started doing one in the winter to go along with one in the summer. We did one in the winter in the rotunda of the Capitol, and the singers just absolutely loved it. But when 9-11 happened in 01, and new security measures were introduced in all public spaces, the Capitol Police, just for several years there, they kind of let us have it, but they didn't want to let us have it there in the rotunda. And ever since those early 2000s, we've done that singing in the foyer of the State Archives building, and they're wonderful hosts, and it's a great space for singing. But, yeah, I mean, there, there was just one project after another that seemed to introduce itself. I hired field workers with NEA grants. I hired Maggie Holtzberg, who's now my counterpart in Massachusetts, and she came down and did quite a bit of field work in about a nine-month period, most of it on the Gandhi Dancer railroad worker song tradition. She later made a film about this tradition, shot mostly in Alabama, She then nominated some of those singers for National Heritage Fellowships. They got them. They started performing around the country, performed at Carnegie Hall, performed at the Smithsonian Folklife Festival. They're all gone now because they were older men back in the day. But they had a wonderful last years of their life presenting a work song tradition that just helped them earn money when they were younger men. So and then I hired you. I hired hired you and Kimsey, who came in and helped do field work for the first of the Alabama Folklife Festivals, which happened initially as part of City Stages, Birmingham's big music festival. We did the Folklife Festival for five years, two in Birmingham, three in Montgomery. And then City Stages continued on and kept presenting traditional artists, and mainly musicians, but also craft artists. And we helped them with that even after we stopped doing our Folklife Festival. It was about this time that the State Arts Council created the Alabama Center for Traditional Culture because for years, since the 1970s, the council had one person as a folklorist, and he did that, and he did other things too because we are a fairly small agency. But the NEA had a challenge grant program where they would match a big grant to states to do some innovative project. And my director at the time, Al Head, thought, we ought to just create a division that does folklore research in Alabama, who identifies traditional artists, who does things with them, exhibits, films, radio shows, you name it, primarily for Alabamians so that they could learn about their own culture, but also for folks all around the world. And we've been doing that. We've been doing that all this time through radio, through television, through Uh, documentary recordings through traveling exhibits. You specialize in traveling exhibits, have done several through the years on gardening traditions, on waterway traditions, and on a retrospective of our folk arts apprenticeship program, which is a type of grant that we started giving really the year before I came here, and they're teaching grants. So traditional artists can apply for a grant. If they get the grant, they can teach a promising student in that tradition. It can be a music tradition, it can be a craft tradition. We've even made a couple of food ways traditions where cooks who specialize in a local traditional cuisine can teach. So you did that great exhibit, a retrospective of the first 20 years of that grants program, but it continues on and that's one of the things that the Alabama Center for Traditional Culture does in addition to research is it runs the Folk Arts Apprenticeship Program and then the other grants program called Folk Life Projects Program, which really funds any 
organization in Alabama, any nonprofit who wants to do a project that documents and presents an Alabama art tradition, a, a traditional, locally indigenous art tradition. And we're rich in those. So we fund festivals and films that other people do. We fund other people's research sometimes if it leads to something like an exhibit film or festival. So it's been great. I've met, you know, just tons of people doing this kind of work for years and years. And you partner with a statewide nonprofit also? Right. In fact, really, when I came here and I was like the only person on staff doing this kind of work, partnerships were critical. So my, my partners through the years have been the Alabama Folklife Association, a nonprofit organization that was organized in 1980 by a, a disparate group of Alabamians, some some academics and universities and some local researchers like Jack and Olivia Solomon, who's written many, many books on Alabama folklore. They were key founders of the Alabama Folklife Association. It's grown into really a very effective nonprofit with a full-time director who right now happens to be Emily Blavos. She's headquartered out of Mobile, but she works all over the state. And so to get this kind of work done effectively, partnerships have been really great. A state agency can do a lot with our resources, but a nonprofit can do a lot of things that state agencies cannot do. They can have paying members. They can sell things. You know, they can, you know, make a documentary recording and sell it. You know, and in a capitalistic society, that's how things are best distributed. The people who want it the most, who feel like they need it and will use it, will buy it. And so, you know, that's the thing that government agencies do not do as well as more private type organizations. And so the Folklife Association has been great and continues to be great. AlabamaFolklife.org is their website, and they are constantly doing programs in the schools for the general public, putting little films online. They're currently helping the uh, Southern Foodways Alliance with a their gravy podcast, producing Alabama material with them, but also other partnerships that we at the Arts Council, we we work a lot with the Alabama Humanities Alliance uh, because they also fund educational programming about Alabama stuff, including Alabama folk culture. And so we've often funded some of the same things. And then I've worked very closely with the Department of Archives and History. For years, uh, I worked closely with Debbie Pendleton, uh, an archivist there. In the 2000s mainly, we produced the Alabama Studies Symposium there on the Capitol and Archives auditoriums. We invited scholars doing fresh research on Alabama history and culture to come present. We tried to give scholarships to as many school teachers as we could to, to come to those presentations, and they did, and also the general public. And that was a really great series of symposia and one of the many things we've done, you know, in partnership. And, of course, we've, we've partnered with uh, Alabama Public Television uh, more recently. Uh, but we, we've always partnered with them. But So what are some of the projects you did with the public television? Well, you know, early on in the late 20th century, they would often come to us for programming ideas, especially me, because Alabama folk culture, any local tradition that has maybe an interesting person or two 
who can talk about that tradition makes for great television. And so we did that. They did shows on the Miller Pottery, on on Japheth Jackson, another African-American sacred harp singer. They did just any number of shows on Alabama folk culture. And these were usually done through the University of Alabama's production studios because APT, they often use the universities to, to create their local content. But in this century, they've developed their own production crew who's very, they're very good. And they came to me with an idea in the early teens of doing a show following me around and when I do my field work. Well, that was their idea. Of course, it, it didn't really work out that way, but it kind of does in that they did follow me around. Mainly, I went and we visited practitioners of folk traditions who, who I had worked with, you had worked with, Joyce Cawthon former director of the Folklife Association had worked with, many other researchers, Dr. Jim Brown of Sanford, people like that, who've done all this research. And usually I would go, I'd pick them up, I'd pick you up. We'd go see somebody to talk about the Jubilees of Mobile Bay or grave houses and cemeteries and make a little travel show out of it, a little kind of reality TV travel show that was very lightly scripted. But we, we got in there, we saw the footage we got, and Chris Holmes, the producer, and I would basically write a voiceover script to, to join all the pieces together. And so we've, we've done 37 of those television shows. We may do a 38th after my retirement. And this is Journey Proud. Journey Proud, I'm sorry, yes. Journey Proud, Journey Proud is, uh, of course, a, a traditional term for being excited before you go on a trip. And we felt like that's a great thing for this show because folks that are really into local culture who are sophisticated enough to, to not only like what's from somewhere else, <laughs> as I like to say, they really like it. And they vicariously, through me and my red truck, can drive around Alabama and taste food and listen to music and, and meet people who have come to Alabama sometimes from different cultures and have brought their culture with them, whether it be Asia or anywhere else. And We've enjoyed helping Alabamians get to know themselves a little bit better. So you have also written a very notable book on Alabama folk pottery. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, I never could give up my love of pottery. And I'm not a potter. It has nothing to do with me making pottery. As an archaeologist, archaeologists study pottery because it's hard-fired clay and it doesn't rot. So it's there. Everything else rots. The human tissue will rot. Textiles typically and wood typically rot. Lots of things rot, but archaeologists have always been able to count on having pottery to look at. So I did my master's thesis on pottery because it was there. It was there to be examined. It was there to be studied in a systematic way and to try to draw conclusions and to be contextualized into a part of American history. When I got back to Alabama, you know, the folks who had helped me learn about pottery, they said, you have to go and do research on Alabama because no one has ever done work on Alabama. And almost all the potters that came to Texas worked in Alabama. We know there was pottery making there. And that's when Hank and the State Arts Council and the Montgomery Museum of Art hired me. And that was a great, just a rapid startup for my research into Alabama pottery and I got a taste of it you know I only did a year of research put together a nice traveling show that went to all the 
the big art museums in the state in Mobile, Huntsville, Birmingham, Montgomery. So I kept on doing the research. And my job here, my, my primary responsibility is to living artists. So in doing this pottery research, my job here afforded me access to Eric Miller, who's like a fifth or sixth or seventh generation potter, Jerry Brown, same thing. The Boggs family, same thing. And Alan Ham, same thing, the Ham family. And I was thinking, you know, they, they helped me a lot. And the older members of their family, I would go mainly on my own time because I did some work with ASCA with these old-time potters. But then I got into the, to the archives and all that. So I started working on my, old, my own time, trying to research these potters, carrying on cor- correspondences with the genealogists and those families, and trying to learn more about black potters in Alabama because there were enslaved potters in the pre-Civil War period. And then there were free black potters who had been emancipated, and there continued to be African-American potters into the 20th century, and so I met some of those, researched them. It took, you know, about 20 years of research, and I wrote this big book that was published by the University of Alabama Press called Alabama Folk Pottery. Because I couldn't really do this work in my office, I would get up at about four in the morning and work on the book before I went to work while my wife was asleep and our little boy, back then was a little boy's grown man now was still asleep. I wouldn't turn the news on, wouldn't turn the weather on, then I'd go straight to the office. I did that for weeks and weeks and weeks, especially towards the end of that project. That was what I was doing the morning of 9-11. I didn't know anything was going on. I went I went straight into my office, got on my computer, started working on some grants-related thing probably here in the RSA Tower in downtown Montgomery. Finally, somebody else in the office stuck her head in my door and said, do you know what's going on? And I didn't. Both powers had been hit. Hadn't had a word because I was so sealed off working on this big pottery book. And so it's been, you know, a labor of love. And I'm so thankful that my family put up with me writing this big old book. And I'm revising it now because since it came out, a lot of other descendants of potters have come forward with photographs and pieces of pottery and new information that can be included in a revision. Ann and Joey will continue their conversation next week when we'll learn about Joey's forthcoming book about potter Jerry Brown and his many other projects during his time at the Alabama State Council on the Arts. Alabama Arts comes to you from the Alabama State Council on the Arts and the Alabama Center for Traditional Culture. Technical production by Deb Boykin. Series theme music, The Bounds of Beauty, written and performed by Scooter Muse. This week on Alabama Arts, Ann Kimsey talks with Joey Brackner. 
director of the Alabama Center for Traditional Culture. Potters that came to Texas worked in Alabama. We know there was pottery making there, and that's when the State Arts Council and the Montgomery Museum of Art hired me, and that was a great rapid startup for my research into Alabama pottery, and I got a taste of it, so I kept on doing the research. That's Wednesday, 9 p.m. Central on Troy Public Radio. Tonight on Alabama Arts, Ann Kimsey talks with Joey Brackner, director of the Alabama Center for Traditional Culture. Joey, who will retire at the end of December after more than three decades at the council, talks about his work documenting and presenting Alabama folk traditions. And that was a great, just a rapid startup for my research into Alabama pottery. And I got a taste of it. You know, I only did a year of research put together a nice traveling show that went to all the, the big art museums in the state in Mobile, Huntsville, Birmingham, Montgomery. So I kept on doing the research. And my job here, my, my primary responsibility is to living artists. So in doing this pottery research, my job here afforded me access to Eric Miller, who's like a fifth or sixth or seventh generation potter, Jerry Brown, same thing. The Boggs family, same thing. And Alan Ham, same thing, the Ham family. But first, the news.